This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Uh, I've got multiple stories to tell. Uh, so uh, there, there's a story about me applying for asylum and becoming a refugee and then being resettled in Canada. Uh, there's also a story of me leaving religion and becoming an atheist and its consequences and how it's impacted my personal relationships. And there's also a story of human rights and secular activism in an Islamist country. And also a story of being jailed unfairly in a dictatorship, which led me to want to change the country. Uh, all these stories that, that would take much longer time to tell than the 45 minutes allocated to me, so I'll try and squish all that in, in, into a, as briefly as I can. Uh, my arrival in Canada is the result of a series of events uh, in, in my life and that of the country I'm from. The domino effects of these events had resulted in my close friends being attacked, uh, murdered and abducted, leaving me and many others heartbroken. These events culminated in with me becoming a UNHCR refugee, uh, resettled in Canada as a protected person and the federal government's urgent protection program. I am from the island nation of the Maldives, as I mentioned. It is a group of sand islands in the middle of Indian Ocean, just below the tip of the Indian subcontinent, uh, south of in, uh, Sri Lanka. It's an independent nation of proud people, almost too proud, uh, with our own language and history that has been recorded for more than 2,000 years. Uh, out of these 2,000 years, uh, the last 900 or so years, uh, we've been a Muslim country. Uh, before conversion to Islam, historical and archaeological evidence shows that the country was Buddhist mainly before. Uh, the current population of this small country is just over 400,000 people uh, to, uh, living in 200 islands out of 1,200 natural islands. These islands are tiny. The capital is situated on a small island of four square kilometers. That's smaller than some of the parks here, really. <laughs> uh, the lack of land meant anything of significant size that requires a lot of space had to be built on their own islands. Uh, the just this geographical makeup of the islands gives the Maldives its unique character and with its airport islands and one, res one island, one resort kind of business model. Uh, the Maldives has also had a tumultuous political history, the, the late 70s. So, so Mamun Abdul Gayoom come to power as a president, a position he would hold for 30 years of dictatorship. His iron-fisted dictatorial rule went side by side with a drive for modernization of the islands. Tourism was introduced in the 70s over the years. The industry grew significantly into the multi-billion dollar industry that it is today. Locally, the tourism industry is known as the goose that lays the golden egg. Uh, it gives the Maldives its international reputation for an upmarket luxury tourism destination, bringing it untold amounts of wealth to the country. But there also lies one of the major problems of the Maldives. Uh, the larger public does not see any of this wealth come down to them. There is no trickle down. Uh, 
because of the Gayum dictatorship, the tourism industry is owned by a cartel-like group of 30-odd families that are extremely loyal to him uh, and, and part of that inner circle. Current statistics shows that the Maldivian tourism industry annually invoices more than $3 billion. And these islands are also Islamic. By law, one cannot be a citizen in the Maldives unless you are Sunni Muslim. This is another problem with the Maldives. Just to give a little background about me, uh, I'm the second child of five siblings born to my parents. Uh, I have one sister, three brothers. Uh, the middle child is, is the sister. Uh, all my siblings were two years apart. My mother passed away when I was six years old from a brain aneurysm, and uh, my father raised us as best as he could, uh, given the circumstances. My father is a hardworking man and, by all definitions, a good Muslim. Uh, he prays five times a day and has a very strict worldview informed by the Islamic doctrine that he believes to be the universal truth. And it is the same Islamic doctrine that everyone else around me believe as well. You see, uh, there are only a handful of countries in the world proclaiming proudly 100% Muslim Islamic country. Maldives is one of them. The others are Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, and Somalia. Everyone I knew growing up was Muslim as far as I knew, at least outwardly they were. Later in life I would learn that this is not true and that it is near impossible to have large groups of people who are homogenous in their beliefs and character. I would learn that quite a few did not actually believe in Islam and are burdened by the restrictions the religion placed on their lives, including myself. However, as far as appearances go, everyone nevertheless played along and appeared Muslim. The reason for this being the sinister nature, what I think is the sinister nature of religion of Islam and how it's used as a political tool to maintain a false sense of unity as one people. Throughout most of my childhood, I grew up in a bubble, unaware of most of the things that were happening around me. I, I, I was born into the previously mentioned uh, privileged group of people that ran the country all this time. It was privilege of wealth and uh, power that came from being from the elite class, I guess. Uh, and my privileges made me blind to what was happening in the country as I grew up. An essential part of my story is that I am an ex-Muslim atheist today. In the language of Islam, an apostate, someone who needs to be killed. My leaving of Islam wasn't a decision made lightly, nor was it made in ignorance of some sort. Uh, some have argued with me it was my lack of understanding of what true Islam is. My journey out of Islam was cemented due to some significant events in my early life. First such incident happened at the very young age of nine years in a Quran class. The class was a private class run by a middle-aged couple with 30-40 students attending per session of the class. Uh, we referred to the woman as the sister and, and, and the man as brother. Uh, one day in class, as I opened my bag, I found out that I've forgotten to bring the Quran with me to the class, uh, which really shouldn't have been an issue because there was other Qurans lying around. Uh, they could have just given me a copy. But instead of being given a replacement Quran that day, I was severely beaten with a stick by the woman. My torment didn't end there. 
for the duration of the class, I was then locked up in an outdoor toilet. The toilet had a large well and some trees. I stayed there crying and sobbing, horrified at my experience. Scared of being alone and hurting from the beating I've just received. The added fear of a jinn coming and uh, taking me away reduced me to near paralysis at this point. Uh, we grew up being told of the existence of these supernatural uh, beings uh, called jinns, who you know, who supposedly crossed over to the human realm and uh, frequently possessing people when they do and doing harm to people. So my fear intensified as I remember the stories of naughty children being taken away by jinns. After an hour and a half, that was the duration of the class, which to me felt like an eternity. I was led out of the toilet. The male teacher then proceeded to advise me on being a good boy and to remember to bring the Quran next time. I would insist to my father that I would never go back to the class, which he agreed to my relief. Uh, I don't remember anything being done about the treatment I received or the, the experience that I just had, because it was quite considered quite normal in, from where I was. Um, after all, they, here is what Islam's prophet says on what is termed as permissible beating of children. Teach your children to pray when they are seven years old and smack them if they do not pray when they are ten years old and separate them in their beds. This experience left a mark on me and I would then forever look at anything Islamic through a negative lens. At the time, I didn't know or understand how to articulate why I didn't like religion, but I knew deep down in my heart something was not okay with religion. I just didn't know what it was. The 90s saw the mass introduction of drugs in the Maldives, heroin, hash oil, was the entirety of the Maldivian drug scene at the time. The drugs were freely available in the country and incredibly cheap. At first, the public didn't understand the implications of this. I remember most young people in the country thought it was cool to do drugs. Uh, and all the popular girls preferred boys that did drugs. Weird. <laughs> this was the grounds for an addiction epidemic Maldives is also a country where the public is not allowed to drink legally. By age 13, I was smoking cigarettes. By age 15, I was occasionally using hash oil. And by age 16, I was introduced to brown sugar, a street name for heroin. I never injected heroin because of my fear of needles and my aversion to pain in general. I still wasn't using regularly, and uh, I wasn't addicted yet, which made me notably cocky about my drug use. I was safely smoking heroin while others I knew were getting sick and, and like everyone else I didn't understand at the time how addiction worked. The drug problem in the country over the next decades would spiral out of control into a full-blown epidemic. 
The 90s also saw the arrival of Salafi Wahhabi ideology in the Maldives, true Islam as they called it. It was significantly different from the Gayoom version of Islam, which he learned during his time as a student in Al-Azhar University in Egypt and was by now enforced in the Maldives. Both were equally harsh. The latter was worse. The other significant event was my trip to Saudi Arabia at the age of 16. My father had begun to suspect that I may be dabbling in drugs and he was concerned about some of the friends I had and he thought I could be changed by taking me to Mecca and, and getting me exposed to more religion. He planned a trip for both myself and, and my brother to accompany him for the whole month of Ramadan in 96. With no internet, I had no idea what to expect of the trip. As a teenager, I was more excited about a trip abroad, which to me was much more exciting than a much coveted pilgrimage to Mecca to visit the Kaaba and pray. I would see new places and would have stories to tell when I was back, so I was excited and I went. Uh, to my pleasant surprise, my brother and I was not the only ones on the journey in our age group being coerced by parents to go because our parents want to influence our thinking with more religion. I had company on the trip. In Mecca, this was the first time I was attempting to honestly fast and pray, and it wasn't going very well at the beginning. The first half of the trip went with me cheating prayers. I attended the prayers as there was no other available option. I was mostly mimicking my father and others in the group when, when doing my prayers. I was also eating sneaked food on the rooftop of the hotel uh, terrace I was staying and exploring the city of Mecca. One such day, my brother and I got caught by the hotel staff as we were eating on the terrace and were promptly marched downstairs to be handed over to the police. As the police in Saudi Arabia, they were going to hand us. The leaders of our Umrah group uh, intervened and we were not handed over after some negotiations. I cannot imagine the outcome, what it would have been like had we been handed over to the police. Well, on this first Saudi trip, I learned a few valuable lessons. One is that we are not all equal, even though we are always told in the eyes of God that we were. The entire, so, the entire area of the Holy Mosque and Kaaba in Mecca is called the Haram, not to be confused by Haram, which means sort of forbidden in Islam. Any prayer done within the boundaries of the haram is considered as done at the Kaaba and supposedly of equal value. On the edge of the holy mosque is a grand palace within these boundaries. The palace has large has large prayer room, almost a separate mosque, if you will, with large floor-to-ceiling windows overlooking the Kaaba. The Saudi royals usually pray there and only come down to the actual floor level of the Kaaba just when they need a photo opportunity. We were definitely not equal. Lying and cheating is common. Number two, lying and cheating is common among those that portray to be more religious than, than others, keeping in mind that those that visit Mecca on their own accord are incredibly religious people. Some people who go to Mecca use begging as a lucrative means to earn a living while resorting to trickery and pretending to be disabled and sick just to win sympathy. 
They use the holy month of Ramadan as an opportunity to earn vast amounts of money targeting pilgrims to the sacred mosque. And some of these beggars abuse people who don't give alms, scolding and yelling in foreign languages as beggars in Mecca came from all backgrounds, all races, all nationalities. Uh, I don't know how much of this has changed today. This was back in 96. Three, religion is not a means to end human cruelty or create more compassion towards our fellow man, but can and is always used as a source of cruelty and to control people. Among the vast number of beggars in Mecca lay hidden something more menacing, organized crime and human trafficking. Women and children were being used as tools to beg from pilgrims by cartel-like gangs. And sometimes those that are used as these begging tools are maimed intentionally to create sympathy from their targets. I was by far more curious and inquisitive than I even knew about myself. I learned this through befriending beggars that hung outside our hotel at the time. Number four, religious people are unforgiving in their attempt to find fault with people and seeking to exact revenge and punish those who they see as doing wrong, even if they had nothing, if they have not done anything wrong. Five, religion is boring and monotonous. The praying, the incessant recitation of the Quran and all the rituals were never ending. It drove me out of my mind. After coming back from the Saudi trip for a few months, I was confused. The first few months, I tried to pray, but it eventually did not take, and I was back to my old self again, this time more sure about the things I've observed there and the lessons I learned from it. Soon, I was getting high more frequently, and before long, I was addicted. In 98, I finished my O-levels. I skipped Divahi language and Islam in the exams. Soon after my O-levels, I went to Sri Lanka. While in Sri Lanka, I attended an Australian education fair and found a private college that would accept me for a bridging course that would allow me to skip my A-levels and go straight to university. So in January 99, I was in Perth, Australia, enrolled in college. On the flight to Australia, I went into withdrawal, and by the time I landed, I was too sick to do anything. I cleaned up cold turkey alone in the first couple of weeks because I was determined to get an education. Six months later, I graduated from the college bridging course and I was enrolled in university studying marketing degree as my father had wanted me to. After spending a year in Perth, I arrived back in the Maldives for a visit in December 99 for the Christmas New Year holidays. It was the year of the big millennium celebrations. Still in the Maldives in January 2000, as a 19-year-old, I was taken into custody by the Maldivian police service because of a phone call I made. My trip back home coincided with a parliamentary by-election. It was still during the height of, the di height of dictator Gayum's power. Apparently, there were some arson threats and, a, and, a part of, and as part of ongoing intimidation and fear by the regime, the government has decided to take people for questioning, sometimes detention, when they were seen outside in groups of more than four people. As things would have it, the brother of my girlfriend at the time was detained during this arresting spree. The phone call I made was to the police to complain about this. During the call, I mentioned something along the lines of how the police was wasting resources and doing what they were doing. What they were doing. And all the while, the real terrorists were probably out, you know, trying to torch a minister's house or something while we speak, which was a really bad idea. Uh, 
Now in hindsight, I was just a foolish young man trying to impress a girl. <laughs> During this detention, I spent 20 days in lockup at, a at the central police station in Mali. It was a general holding cell where everyone that is brought in were kept all together in cramped space with bunk beds. After the temporary holding cell, I was transferred to a solitary confinement cell in a basement in the basement of the main police station in the capital. I was deprived of daylight and any connection to another human being. I spent another 14 days there. At the end of the isolation confinement, I was then transferred to the country's largest prison facility, Mafushi Prison, for another 56 days. I turned 20 while in, while in prison. I was no longer a teenager, but a young adult. In Mafushi Prison, I was kept in a large warehouse-type prison cell with 120 other prisoners sharing three toilets. We were given a liter of clean drinking water each day. The water coming from the taps in the bathroom had a slimy, muddy scum in it. And, and, and we slept on concrete slabs. While in detention, I, uh, a number of my teeth started to rot and I developed a skin condition around my waist and a groin area which results, resulted in some scarring. Much later after the imprisonment, some of my damaged teeth would eventually fall out and I'll have a bridge at the bottom teeth. During this entire period of detention in various facilities, there was minimal questioning about what was questioning that was relevant to what was going on in the country or any alleged involvement of mine in any of it. During this time in prison, I was exposed to the horrors of prison torture in the Maldives. Not to me directly, but to others around me. I met people who were maimed in many ways. I will never forget meeting a guy who was denied medical treatment after prison guards broke his spine in one of the beatings. He was carried around on a makeshift stretcher made out of plywood by other prison inmates. Then one early morning while in prison, I was told to get ready because I was to be taken to court. After a two-hour boat ride from Mafushi prison, I was back in Male and presented at court on the same day. In court, I was denied access to a lawyer or the opportunity to speak on my behalf. On the same day, I was sentenced to 15 years in prison under the terrorism law of Maldives at the time. The judge also reduced my sentence at the same court session to 150 Maldivian rufia. That is equivalent to US $10. It's a fine because I was a student with no criminal record. Then they let me go. I would learn that this was a common practice by the regime to sentence people to lengthy prison sentences on trumped-up charges, then reduce the sentence or suspend it. It was a means of controlling people. Fear of reinstated convictions usually keeps people on a short leash. I left the country on the same day to Sri Lanka where I got treatment for some of, the, some of my injuries and then onward to Saudi Arabia again for the second time, accompanied by my father. My father had made a nadr to take me to Hajj if I was released. A nadr is an Islamic vow where a person making it obliges himself to do something as a form of prayer because of something they wanted to happen or achieve, in this case, my freedom. 
I was relieved to be free from prison and I happily obliged and went this time. I even performed the Hajj as it was supposed to be done. Maybe I wanted to show my gratitude for being free. By the time all this had happened, my university classes were back in session and I applied for, to defer my classes. After some negotiations with my father, I would change my major and relocate to Brisbane, Australia to study at the Queensland University of Technology for my bachelor's degree in film and television in a broad media degree. I didn't come back to the Maldives for my holidays for a while, eventually returning at the end of 2002 year-end holidays for what I hoped would be a brief visit. On arrival at the airport, I was picked up by the police for what they claim for the crime of drinking overseas. They had waited for me to collect my bags at the baggage carousel before arresting me, and I was then transferred with my luggage to the police station. My family was at the airport to receive me, but never got the chance to even speak to me or say hello after spending two years overseas as I was taken in front of them. I was told I, I, I was made to give a urine sample and kept overnight at the station. The following morning, I was transferred to house arrest without a specific limit to my detention. Five days passed before, before I was taken back to the police station for questioning. They wanted to know why my urine sample test had come back negative. <laughs> I had managed to tamper with the sample with the help of a young police officer who accompanied me to extract the sample. After all, I had a couple of drinks in Singapore on my way before getting on the plane, and I didn't want another prison sentence now that I was already in custody. After some intense questioning at the police station, I was then transferred to another prison on a different island on the same day. I spent 11 days in solitary confinement again, this time in Dunidu prison, well known, for, well known and notorious for torture. During my time there, I was kept in a single cell building made from concrete towards the beach side of the island. The cell had corrugated metal sheet roofing and I baked like I was in an oven in the 30 degree plus heat during the day and nearly froze during the night. I passed the time reading government produced religious material which was the only thing that was provided to spend the time. After 11 days without any questioning, I was again transferred back to house arrest, this time indefinitely. My passport was confiscated. During this time, I was told nothing about my extended detention. Any attempts by me to reach out to someone at the police were met with deaf ears, and I tried to find respite to my imprisonment. Back in Australia, the new semester started again, and again I found myself deferring a semester due to my predicament. Two months into my house arrest, an aunt of mine agreed to plead for my release with the then first lady of the country. My aunt and the first lady were friends and relatives. My aunt was informed that I should write a letter pleading to the president to release me. I did, and my aunt delivered the message to the president. The following day, a police van picked me up and took me to the military headquarters instead of the police headquarters. I was reminded that I had a suspended terrorism conviction and that my behavior needed to be improved or the sentence would be carried out. I was told the boss had requested me to be released. After the stern warning, I was freed and my passport returned. I immediately returned to Australia the same week 
since my classes were back in session, I had already deferred my studies for a semester. I used the free time to hang around the volunteers of local, local Brisbane chapter of Amnesty International. I did that for a couple of months. It was around this time I picked up a strong sense, of, sense for justice, equality, and human rights as something I was extremely passionate about. The next semester I would resume classes as usual. While things in my life returned to normalcy, a Maldivian prisoner named Hassan Iwar Nasim was murdered by prison guards on the 19th of September 2003. The beaten and bruised beyond recognition body of Iwan was brought back to the capital Male for the burial. At the cemetery, his, his mother, his brave mother, showed the body to the public. At, at the at the public questioning the ongoing and never-ending injustices in the Maldives. This single act of bravery from the mother of the dead prisoner triggered a domino effect that resulted in the formation of the Maldivian Democratic Party, MDP for short, and the birth of a real democracy movement in the country, a bittersweet turning point in our recent history. All this time, despite everything that has happened to me, I never really thought I should do something about what's happening in my country or get involved in politics or activism. But the brutal way in which Ivan was murdered made me rethink it. The same year, I would start a news website called Divahi Observer. It was my first entry into Maldivian political landscape. While working at Divahi Observer, I would write an editorial title, is calling for the resignation of the president unconstitutional, unconstitutional, which is available still on my blog. This editorial put me back on the map of the Gayum regime, and my father was summoned for questioning as I was still in Brisbane. My ongoing disobedience and by now the rising star of my father's own political career angered President Gayum enough to arbitrarily and illegally freeze our family businesses, bank accounts, and change ownership of one of the two resorts that the family owned. The resort was at the time closed for renovation with our family-owned construction company, workforce, equipment, and machinery still heavily utilized on the island to rush through a three-month renovation project to open the island in time for the peak tourist season during the Christmas and New Year holidays. Another resort we owned was used as collateral for the funds needed for the renovation of the first resort. The domino effect of this action by the government would later go on to bankrupt our family businesses. By the end of 2004, I graduated from university. It was the same year of the great tsunami in Asia. The disaster resulted in the death of 82 people in the country as the massive waves washed over the islands, briefly submerging the whole country underwater for a moment. After all, the highest point in the Maldives is two meters above sea level. Salafi Wahhabi activists used the opportunity to, opportunity to intensify their activism, fueling a new wave of religiosity in the country. Uh, in January the following year, I got married to my first wife in Sri Lanka because I was unable to go to the Maldives, fearing arrest. I would move to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia after my marriage. I quit working on Divahi Observer in October 2005 when my son was born. While I was in Malaysia, my father continued negotiating with the government for me to be able to return to the Maldives without reprisal or consequence. By now, the opposition to the Gayum regime was formidable and most exiled politicians and activists overseas were coming back to the country. Late 2005, my father got confirmation that I would be allowed to 
come back into the country. I returned to the Maldives with my new family in January 2006. I stayed away from politics and activism during the first year that I was back. While my father focused on his growing political career as an MP, I worked in the family businesses along with my father's business partner and uncle of mine. Not that there was much left of it. I tried to revive the family businesses without any luck. 2006 also saw my third visit to Saudi Arabia for another month. This time, my infant son and his mother also accompanied me. I was going back as a responsible adult because I needed closure to my struggle with Islam. It was around this time I finally read the whole Quran with an effort to understand what it actually means. By the time I came back, I was firmly in the atheist camp. The last vestiges of Islam was my fear of hell ingrained in my mind since childhood. What if I was wrong? This was always on my mind. This was no longer the case. I was no longer afraid of hell and it was remarkably freeing. I could now focus on just living my life and making a difference in the world. However, I didn't start using the atheist label to describe myself until I got a little help. My reading of The God Delusion by Professor Richard Dawkins was the final nail in the coffin of Islam for me. Unfortunately, 2006 ended badly for me in my personal life as my first marriage ended in divorce soon after my son's first birthday. And in early 2007, the family businesses declared bankruptcy. It was a chaotic and painful time for us. In the 2008 elections, former Amnesty International prisoner of conscience and international climate change darling, Mohammed Nasheed came to, uh, became the first democratically elected president of the Maldives. The defeat of the 30-year-old Qayyum regime signaled the long-awaited arrival of democracy in the Maldives. After Nasheed's MDP and the coalition won the election, my father would be given the portfolio of Minister of State for Home Affairs. I went for a job interview at the press office at the president's office. I did not get hired because... I hadn't completed high school Islam and Divehi, which is a prerequisite for non-political civil service in the Maldives. Which is a shame, really. No crying over spilt milk. I worked for change at the party level. Changes were slowly slow-moving because even though the country was now a democracy, the system was still entrenched with members of the old regime and hard to root out without resorting to authoritarianism. This hurt progress in the MDP government. After the transition to democracy in 2008, the country as a whole began to face a new problem, Salafi, Wahhabi, Islamic supremacists, who were mostly until now politically dormant in the, country, in, in the community, began to abuse democracy and free speech rights opened up by the new government. They used the new environment to penetrate Islamist ideas and radicalization on the pretext of free speech free political activity and religion. The work was done through traditional media, such as newspapers, TV and radio, and later on on social media. The Maldives has the most number of social media users in South Asia, with an estimate as, estimates as high as 80%. Mobile phone penetration is, uh, is much higher at 140%. Some people are having multiple connections. 46% of the population had smartphones and 80% of all cellular connections are at the minimum 3G connections. The proliferation of internet connections was vastly helped in, in, has vastly helped in the radicalization efforts. But some of the most impactful work 
by the radicals was done offline. Radical imams began to spend time in the outer islands for months at a stretch preaching their extremist views and indoctrinating mostly an un undereducated population in the islands. Didn't help matters that Nasheed, in a misguided move, allowed the Islamists to infiltrate the democratic government by forming an Islamic ministry, which didn't exist before. Nasheed would later admit to this as a mistake. Also, in 2008, I would get married for a second time, this time to my current wife. She's here today. By 2010, I was extremely frustrated by the slow pace of progress in the country, and then something happened that would start a new chapter of my life. It began when my youngest brother opened up to me about being gay and his secret founding of the Rainbow Maldives movement. As a flamboyant and effeminate young man, he was getting harassed and bullied almost on a regular basis whenever he, was, he went out. My brother was six months old when my mother passed away. When we were children, I was never a particularly good brother to my siblings, largely due to my own personal issues th that I was battling with, and I sometimes bullied him. But as an adult, I, re I felt remorseful of my behavior as a child and was overcome by a sense of duty towards him. I had to do something to help him out of the situation that he was in. The events that followed made me closer to him and I would end up being one of his staunchest supporters as he navigated through his experiences. One day, he introduced me to a quote by French philosopher Albert Camus. It read, The only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. My brother told me that it inspired him. I also found the quote resonated with me at a deep level. No surprise there. My entire life and that of my brother would go on to become an act of rebellion, advocating for peaceful revolutionary change every moment, every opportunity we got. Pretty soon I began working independently with marginalized groups in the society who were shunned by mainstream politics. I came to know a lot of ex-Muslims, atheists, and members of the LGBT community in the Maldives. My brother and I quickly worked up a plan to bring out, the main, bring out to the mainstream the plight of the marginalized in our society. By the time we, we firmly believed that it was the right course of action given the situation, and also because everyone was talking about human rights and democracy after all. I viewed human rights more broadly outside of Islamic context as universal, as it should be. There should be no space for exceptions or cultural relativism when it came to human rights. We all bleed the same, we all hurt the same, we all desire the same things. One such plan was organizing a low-key blogger meetup in the country. We needed to find like-minded people who were brave and determined enough to be part of what we were doing. During this process, by mid-2010, I would meet some incredible people who I would go on to build enduring relationships with. Hillat Rashid, Ahmad Rilwan, and Yamin Rashid were among them and were some of the most noteworthy of those who we met at the blogger meetups. They were liberal bloggers, committed human rights activists, and free speech advocates. We clicked on a fundamental ideological level with common interests and a passion for change in the country. I cannot speak for someone else's religious belief, so I won't. I can only speak for my own, but this group of guys would go on to form a de facto leadership of a new wave of secular activism in the Maldives. 
There are others, but I won't be naming names for their security as some of them still live in the lion's den. Others are overseas, but not acting openly. Early activism by this group include running a petition asking the government to end religious groups from influencing government policy. We also held the first protest in the country calling for religious tolerance in the Maldives. We held two protests on the International Human Rights Day, December 10th in 2011 and 2012. We called the event Silent Solidarity. Islamic gangs who viewed our activism as anti-religious attacked us on the second protest, seriously injuring some of us. The police refused to investigate the attacks. Even events in local politics soon brought an end to the first democratic government in a coup d'etat carried out by the police and the military of the country on February 7, 2012. Due to time constraints, uh, I am skipping through a lot of the details here. On the day of the coup, several government supporters and, and key political figures were attacked by rogue police the victims of which sustained severe injuries. My father was among those that were targeted. He ended up with three broken vertebral columns. The same week of the coup, my father would leave the Maldives to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia for what would end up being never-ending medical treatments. This was a permanent relocation out of the Maldives for my father. After multiple operations today, he is fortunate to walk but his legs still swell up at the end of the day and his medical problems never went away. Any remaining money in the family savings would now go towards his medical treatments. In the middle of 2012, Hillat Rashid, by now a close friend, was attacked by Islamist thugs. His throat was slashed with a box cutter outside his home in the capital. He was, a, he, was a, he was a journalist and a blogger, and being gay himself, he was also one of the very first LGBTQ activists in the country. Miraculously, he survived. Emotionally and mentally, he would never recover, and Hillat would later retire from public life. He disappeared without being in touch with anyone in our activist community. The post-coup government would refuse to acknowledge that the attack on his life was anything to do with religious extremists, despite having him reported many threats since the silent solidarity protest to the Maldives police service. By now, I was starting to receive similar threats because of the risks to my life for participation in the protests and, and my vocal social media persona. I left Mali City around the middle of 2012. I took a job developing a tourist guest house project in one of the islands. I tried to stay out of direct political uh, politics during this time and focused on work, trying, hoping that it would be a distraction. However, whenever I was back in Male during weekends or for any other reason, I would still end up joining the protests and staying away from politics as I had originally intended was next to impossible. On December 22, 2012, exactly a little more than a day from the second protest calling for religious tolerance, I founded Secular Democratic Maldives Movement, Secular Maldives for short, as an internet-only activist movement. The movement exists to this day on Facebook and Twitter. With the birth of Secular Maldives, I was now focused on secularism, minority rights, and its related politics and activism. Gays, liberals, secularists, atheists, agnostics, and persons of other religion are deemed to be an abomination by Maldivian society. And in my view, that had to change for there to be any meaningful progress in the country. 
They're treated as an underclass with little or no access to justice or, or state redress and are heavily persecuted and ostracized in society. Therefore, it came as no surprise when Secular Maldives was formed. It was met with opposition. Its popularity among the local youth further enraged the detractors. At the same time, I was also helping out with Rainbow Maldives movement projects. I soon became a key heterosexual ally of the gay community in the, in the country. After launching Secular Maldives, realizing that the Maldives was no longer safe for me, I quietly relocated myself to Kuala Lumpur in January 2013. Thus began my years in exile. In the years that followed the coup, a lot of activism went online due to security reasons. The trend of the rise of radical Islam had increased almost exponentially since the coup. However, our online activism was slowly but steadily countering that extremism. A lot of other independent but related pages and groups sprang up on Facebook. The Maldivian Freethinkers, Maldivian Atheists, Maldives, uh, Women's Rights Maldives are some just to name a few. There are many others that I can, many, many more that I can list here. Uh, all were operating under the same modus operandi, each dedicated to their own unique cause, online and anonymous. I was a collaborator on the pages that I just mentioned here, advising, guiding, coordinating, sharing my experiences, and sometimes creating content. My involvement with the Maldivian Freethinkers page was, was with his founder, Nail Nasir. In September 2004, he was found dead on the beach of one of the islands in an extremely suspicious drowning. A couple of weeks before his death, Nail told me that someone had, might have found out that he was running the Freethinkers page. Writing his eulogy was the hardest thing I did in my life. It is available for anyone to have a read on the page as the last post ever made. I'm currently the only admin left on, on the page, and, and it's controlled by me today. The page doesn't publish anymore. Pretty soon, the Maldives Police Service began investigating the Maldivian Atheist page. It continues to be under investigation by the police. Just to give you some stats, the Secular, Maldives, Secular Democratic Maldives movement has 5,600 fans on Facebook, 590 followers on Twitter, Maldivian Atheist page has, page has 3,800 fans on Facebook. Women's Right Maldives has 2,800 fans on Facebook. Maldivian Freethinkers has 1,560 fans on Facebook. Rainbow Maldives has 835 fans on Facebook. Just the pages I had any involvement in the, in, in the Maldives is commanding a sizable audience in the Maldives. And, and there were still my own social media accounts. All this added momentum to the Secular Maldives movement and another online social discussion forum called Colorless, also on Facebook. Colorless was a Facebook page, a Facebook group created by a friend of mine on 7th February 2012 on the same day of the coup d'etat to promote harmony and public conversation amongst a hugely politically polarized population. The group was not anonymous, and the administrators of the group, though openly visible, did not intervene at all, but let the discussions flow freely. And with more than 5,000 members, the group took its own form and was well known in the Maldives for the unmoderated exchange of ideas. In a natural progression, by June 2014, the group had moved on from politics to discuss to discussions about human rights, social cohesion, and ultimately religious belief. 
The group created the stage for anonymously run pages to directly advocate against extremism and converse with newly recruited extremists about the flaws of their ideology. This then actually started to make a difference and young individuals were once again becoming less radicalized and began turning away from the mullah scaremongering. As a response, militant extremist groups acting anonymously and gangsters in the country took control of the group. After that, they started a witch hunt for so, of, all, of sorts against what they called secular undesirable faggots. The same week, the people involved in the takeover of the group were photographed in a meeting with the country's home minister, who is also the head of the police force and also the Islamic minister of the country. The following day, vigilantes took to the streets armed with machetes and knives. They kidnapped perceived atheists, homosexuals, and secularists who they call ladini. It's an Arabic term meaning irreligious. And took possession of their smartphones in an attempt to unveil the admins behind this new wave of unprecedented online activism. The individuals were coerced to read the Shahada, the two fundamental declarations of Islamic faith, and asked to rep re repent for their sins. The treatment received by these individuals were horrid. They were beaten up, lit cigarettes were put out on their flesh, and they were tortured into fear and submission. These individuals to this day have not come out with their stories for fear of persecution. On, one of them is a very close and personal friend. They are acutely aware that they live in a society where they are ostracized, persecuted with, with complete state complicity, with no access to justice or redress. These individuals now treat very carefully on the streets of Maldives and have stopped their online activism. At this time, I do not know the extent to which identities of the admins have been compromised. But it is safe to say that other individuals who, like myself, who have been very open in declaring our commitment to universal human rights and secular humanist views have also been unhurt because we live overseas and use anonymous social media accounts. They would just need to access to the account of one contributor and the whole wheel of secrecy will disappear. It is not unlikely that this hasn't... This has already happened. These kidnappings occurred and the witch hunt went on from mid to late June 2014. In August of the same year, Ahmad Rilwan, famously known by his Twitter handle as Moyamiha, goes missing. The official account of his disappearance is deceptive. The established facts around his disappearance are Rilwan was a blogger, social media commentator, uh, journalist critical of Islamic radicalization, the religious gangsters, social hypocrisy, and the Gayoom brothers. He was well known for his secular and humanist views, too. He, his last known investigation was regarding the funding, pragmatics, and logistics of dissemination of jihadist individuals from Maldives to Syria. Because he was a good friend of mine and involved in our secular activism, we spoke frequently. I, I talked to Rilwan three times the week he disappeared. He told me the last, latest work that he was involved in. Three, he was last seen on 8th of August on CCT footage boarding a ferry from capital Male bound to nearby Hulumale where he lived. His neighbor, reported for, his neighbor reported hearing loud screams from his flat and witnessed an abduction in a red car on the night he went missing. Five, the police retrieved a knife from the scene of the abduction. Six, his family reported him missing on the 13th of August. 
around the same time, a government cabinet minister was tweeting about government-led war against un-Islamic un-Islamism. Soon after Rilwan's abduction, my other friend and co-collaborator Yamin Rashid would begin a relentless campaign to find his best friend Ahmad Rilwan. More details of his abduction, efforts to find him, related news media along uh, about him along with timeline of events is available on findmoyamiha.com if anyone wants to learn more about him. While the search was going on, a well-known government-sponsored social media commentator and online activist tweeted to stop looking for Rilwan because he, was, he has been killed, drowned to the bottom of the ocean. Around the same time, then-Islamic minister was accused of connections with the Islamic State, which he denies. The Maldives Police Service and the Maldives National Defense Force was also accused of being involved in radical Islamist activities. By now, Maldives had already become a hotbed for recruiting to the Islamic State and was a large number of fighters in Syria and Iraq. By some estimates, there is 250 Maldivian fighters in Syria, making the Maldives the highest foreign fighter contributor on a per capita basis. In this new environment, Islamist and jihadi groups were also targeting social, cultural activities in the country as well. Despite all of this, the government's official stand was two-faced, talking about combating radicalism overseas at the UN and elsewhere, while allowing them to fester and grow at home. By the end of 2006, my frustration was beginning a building because none of the secular activism was making any progress. The problem that I identified was none of these activities had a face, no personality was attached to it. It was time for me to start a new approach to the activism. On November 20th, 2016, I launched my own Facebook page as a public figure and began my own YouTube video series in the name of Fikuri Ingilab. Fikuri Ingilab, the words mean thought revolution. In March of this year, with my visa expiring in Malaysia, I flew to Colombo, Sri Lanka on the 17th with plans to settle down in Sri Lanka. A couple of days after I arrived in Sri Lanka, Salafi Wahhabi activists accused me on social media of running the Maldives atheist page. The same week, a prominent sheikh in the country, Muhammad Shafi, issued a fatwa for my beheading. The fatwa issued by Sheikh Shafi was brief and straight to the point. It read, those who mock Allah and the Prophet shall be beheaded. It is the Islamic way. The Sheikh went to elaborate further. Mujunaim has disrespected the Prophet Muhammad repeatedly, much more than Abu Jahl did. Abu Jahl was sort of Prophet Muhammad's arch nemesis at the time. Pious believers would not stay quiet and calm when someone disrespects Allah and his messenger. We are not right in this just because. If you, do, if you don't know the rulings regarding this matter, please look it up and educate yourself. Soon as the fatwa was out, I received a phone call from someone claiming to be working at the Embassy of the United States of America in Sri Lanka. After verifying the person was who they claimed they were, I was introduced to some more people operating in Sri Lanka, helping in the media and human rights space to expand my support network while being advised to proceed with applying for protection and asylum at the UNHCR office in Colombo, Sri Lanka. I, I'm skipping through some of the details here for privacy and security reasons of the people involved. By end of March, I had applied for asylum with the UNHCR. While waiting for my asylum application to be processed by the UNHCR, my time in Colombo would become a hellish nightmare after Islamist social media accounts started posting about me being in Sri Lanka. This put me at imminent risk in Sri Lanka. 
because of security reasons, I was frequently moving around in Sri Lanka with the help of a network of Sri Lankan human rights activists. While in Sri Lanka, I slept in 17 different places, sleeping on floors, couches, and in beds wherever possible. I was soon running out of money, and I applied for assistance for funding from various organizations that helped uh, people in media, blogging, and journalism, and human rights activism. Freedom House granted me respite by approving my application for financial assistance. While I was waiting for my application for asylum being determined at the UNHCR, one of the most hurtful things in my life happened. All this time, my father and other relatives were unaware of my atheism. Sure, they knew I wasn't particularly religious, but deep down, my father had always hoped that it was a phase that I would eventually get over. He would not understand why I had a fatwa on my, for my beheading and why I applied for asylum. With the fatwa on my head and the social media networks in the Maldives buzzing about my atheism, it was no longer a topic that I could avoid when he confronted me and I told him everything. He promptly declared that I was no longer his son. He would not accept me as a non-Muslim. While he is a complicated man to deal with, I loved him dearly and it hurt me a lot. Today, I leave a door open for him to, for reconciliation, which I hope he would take but for any reconciliation to happen, he would have to accept me for who I am. I hope he does. Previously, when my brother told my father he is a gay atheist, he was also disowned. My brother is now also a refugee in New Zealand. As soon as I applied for asylum, on the 31st of March, a Maldivian model and a medical student studying in Bangladesh, Rauda Atif, was found dead in her room. News media immediately reported that the death was a suicide and, and people sort of accepted that explanation. And, then, and with my background knowledge of extremist activity in the region, I was first to call out the possibility of an Islamist murder and started blogging about the incident. I blew the story wide open and got local media and international media to take notice. You can read about her murder on my blog if you'd like to know more about her. But this enraged the Islamists further because I was blowing things you know, to the public and, and making things public that they didn't want to know. What happened next was the most unforgettable, unforgettable and heartbreaking thing in my recent memory. While waiting for my refugee status to be determined, my dear friend and longtime collaborator, Yamin Rashid, who headed the Find Moyamiha campaign, authored the Daily Panic blog and regularly featured on my YouTube channel, was murdered on 23rd April 2017. He was found stabbed to death by the staircase of his apartment building in the early hours of Sunday morning. The news sent me reeling and it felt like the world just got pulled under from my feet. I loved Yamin like a brother and I had the utmost respect for him. I have said this before and I repeat again, I've never met a better human being than Yamin. According to Yamin's father, his throat was slit, he had been stabbed in 35 places and part of his skull was missing. The, the authorities in the country hid the facts around his murder and continued to obstruct justice. The details of his murder, new, murder, news coverage, and efforts of justice, and a timeline of events can be found on weareyamin.com. Just days before Yamin's murder, I was sent a message on my Facebook by an anonymous account. The sender's profile was full of Islamist material. It read, and I translate, 
if you live in this world, if you want to live in this world, stop posting different things. I can't even breathe properly with you alive. Where are you? You are such a coward that you can't even reply to, this, to the message after reading it. I think you will be the next person to disappear from the Maldives. If you have so much guts, just tell us where you are. I want to know where you are. The day I see you may be the last day of your life. You think you're posting stuff because you will not die? You donkey even have the, your picture on your profile. We are now looking for you. We will find you, inshallah. No, I will even pray for calamity to befall you every time I pray. Allah will grant me my dua prayers. You will get a disease in this world with my prayers that you will die a death of misery. There is nothing prayer can't do. Your father is extremely sad, isn't he, that you and your brother is acting like this? I know who your father is. Because of that, it would be easier for me to find you. Don't be too happy about things. Your father was an MDP member, wasn't he? I know who he is. You're afraid, aren't you? We will kidnap your father and family members till we find you or you give up. While waiting for my asylum application to come through, things continue to escalate further. I was invited to appear on a video podcast by the secular jihadists of the Middle East. By doing so, I had openly talked in public about my predicament and what was happening in the Maldives. The Maldives Police Service promptly issued an arrest warrant for me. They actually tweeted it at me. Every newspaper in the country carried the story as headline news. Early in June, our refugee application was granted by the UNHCR in record time, two months since the application was made. Our case file went to the Americans first, which promptly bounced because of President Trump's refugee ban. Then it passed over to the Canadian Embassy in Colombo. We had two meetings with the Embassy. The first meeting was for an interview which lasted for three hours. We were informed that the interview that we were being placed in the federal government's urgent protection program and being resettled in Vancouver. The second meeting was to get our passport stamped with a temporary resident pass and, an and after an anxiety-laden airport process with the International Organization for Migration, that's the organization that handles refugee trans transport on behalf of the UNHCR. We landed on Vancouver on June 22nd of this year. From application to resettlement, it all happened just under three months. This week, we became permanent residents of Canada. The security risk posed for in conclusion, the security risk posed for anybody as seriously involved in online secular movement as me in the Maldives cannot be underestimated. The problem is the complexity of the matter. We're dealing with a country which was ruled by a dictator for 30 years and went through a democratic reformation process in the dictator's last years of rule, and so a democratic government for three years before the coup d'etat reversed the process. Throughout the last 40 years, Maldives have been caught in a global trend of Islamic radicalization, primarily funded by Saudi Arabia, with Maldives becoming a hotbed for terrorist recruitment by 2012. With heavy political infighting in the country between the actors, with no determined political ideology other than fighting over who gets to control the lucrative tourism industry, Islam is used as a tool of control and fear. All the while, politicians pay lip service to the Islamists so they can continue to plunder the wealth of the nation. 
secularists, atheists, agnostics, gays, people of other faiths in the country see no end to the situation. Moderate Muslim Maldivians who constitute the vast majority of the population continue dreaming and hoping of a better day. No politician could actively advocate secularism for fear of losing popularity amongst their base. The lack of honesty by prominent political actors continue to make the situation worse for everyone. Every, anybody that tries to uphold universal values of human rights or call for secularism are targeted and persecuted with violence, harassment, and economic duress by a mix of government complicity and or government incapacity or Islamic extremist sects and social conservatism. Today, I am a member of a small ostracized minority group in the Maldivian society, perceived as atheist, homosexual, secularist. I am not only being persecuted for my views on LGBTQ rights, politics and religion, but I am persecuted for a combination of all of this, which boils down to the question of my identity, in a sense, who I am. My very existence questions the status quo in a heavily Islamicized conservative Maldivian society which is officially known as a 100% Muslim country. Thank you.